Hey, Cozy Robots, I'm Mike McCarg. And I'm Grace Vaughn. And welcome to the Cozy Robot Show, a program about empathetic skepticism, learning, gosh, to reflect on our feelings, learning to think critically, learning to have media literacy, learning to make a better world together. And uh, in the vein of being empathetic, (laughs) I am literally teary-eyed, Grace. Why? Why are you teary-eyed? Every week, I forget like how emotionally intense the countdown music is. You're you're tearing up because the music moved you. I, the music moved me. It does every oh week, and I laugh it's about so it every funny. week as I start crying. And it's always oh, there's no. like 18 seconds until the show starts. I'm like, but I'm having a cry. Mike, Mike, your heart is very big. I listen to the music opening, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> like I'm the Grinch over here, and you're like having a moment. I am an easy laugh and an easy cry, and I like both of those things about me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so. Uh, we're live on all the platforms. You know that by now. We are going to be on demand, as always. You'll be able to hear this, uh, like most people do, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Or you can check out the clips uh, on demand on Instagram TV or YouTube. You know, all that stuff. You got the promo stuff right at the beginning. This week, we have got a really, really exciting program planned for you because we are going to talk about disability and ableism, a topic the Cozy Robots requested that we explore together. So thank you for all of all of you in our Discord community for recommending topics and making requests about where we go with the program. And we thought if we're going to talk about disability and advocacy and ableism, why wouldn't we invite on one of my dearest friends and one of our most extraordinary cozy robots, uh, Stephanie Tate, who is not only just one of my absolute besties, uh, but um, incredibly talented. So our special guest co-host tonight is a writer, speaker, disability consultant, and of course, a friend of mine. As a Lyme disease sufferer, whose 14-year delayed diagnosis led to a myriad of lasting health consequences and a trauma survivor who remains in active treatment for her CPTSD, Stephanie speaks and writes about disability and suffering from the perspective of her everyday lived experience. So please help me welcome our special co-host tonight by saying hello in the chat, wherever you might be watching. Welcome to the program, Stephanie Tate. Woo! It feels so weird to be live on the show instead of watching it. I wasn't (laughs) expecting how weird it would feel. (laughs) That is a a little different. I've I've done that too, and it never uh, I've never figured out how to just like I kind of go into listener mode when I go on a program. I I listen to it all, and then they, someone will ask me a question. And I'm like, hmm. Oh, I, I was just I was listening to you banter, and I was like, oh, it's my Monday. Like I'll get a drink and some chips, and I'll just sit and like watch the show. And then I was like, that's right. They're oh, I'm on the show. Okay, forgot for a minute. We're so excited to have you, Stephanie. I, a lot of people were so excited when I was making the announcement on all the social platforms that you were going to be on here. Um, and I'm crying again. Crying again, Mike. <laughs> oh, that's so so again. Like, we all just got good. Stop. I just, Stephanie, I just adore you and I miss you so much. And I just seeing oh. you, I'm realizing <laughs> like, no, hold on. I'm like 11 days from two weeks post dose two at which point like there's so many options open up i know so like i this moment here on the show seeing you on the screen and doing this program makes me realize like at some point i'm gonna see you in person again and that point is so much closer than the last time we saw each other wow just such a deep sense of gratitude i had to voice it or i would not be able to continue with the program so we're going to have a great, great time together tonight. I'm so excited. We got so many incredible questions. People came out in droves to send in questions tonight. And I picked uh, questions at random. And I think we should just jump in because we've got so many. Great. You're in charge. So, as always. Okay, sure. Okay, so let's start with this one. Ostrich Calm, love the handle, on Instagram asks... Why is the term disability preferred to differently abled? So I love this question because I think 
people are confused by it sometimes. And the reality is that a lot of people are assigning uh, a negative stigma to the word disability. Um, because deep down, when you live in a society that, you know, ableism is just the default, it's the norm, we grow up with it without we whether we realize it or not. Underneath that is the idea that there's a stigma associated with the word disability, because deep down, we have negative connotations about having disability about being disabled as a person. Um, so there are a lot of people that think, or say things to me like, oh, I don't think of you as disabled, or I don't want to call you disabled. Like, I don't see you that way. I mean, it's clear they've assigned some sort of negative there. But the reason that disability is sort of the preferred terminology is, first of all, it's true. Um, and we can try to put euphemisms or funny words on it all we want, and it doesn't change the reality. It just sort of disguises it. But what I try to explain to people is disabled is, is not the opposite of abled. It's mm -hmm. the opposite of enabled. Okay. So I'm not not abled. The difference is that some people are enabled by our society because it's set up for bodies like theirs and for people like them. And I am disabled by our society. The mm -hmm. way our structures are set up hold me back from being able to achieve my full potential or to operate in the world the way other people do. So that kind of helps, I think, sometimes for people get over the hurdle of, I'm not saying I'm not capable or I'm not abled. I'm saying I'm being held back, whereas other people are being enabled. Mm -hmm. Differently abled as a euphemism, it feels very patronizing, first of all. It just sounds very childish in a lot of ways. But mostly it's that when you understand that disabled is the opposite of enabled, anything that's sort of differently abled takes away from that reality, right? It doesn't acknowledge yeah. that I face structural barriers. It just says, oh, like, you're just a little bit different than me. Like, that's so great for you, how unique you are. And that doesn't acknowledge that, no, I face actual barriers barriers to my inclusion in society, to my ability to do my wow. job, to my ability to access places I want to go. Um, so differently able to sort of, it almost just refuses to acknowledge systemic barriers or that mm. there's actual marginalization that happens to disabled people. Mm. I wrestled so much with that in my own journey because identifying as a disabled person is, is quite new to me. Um, but I have an adult diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, an adult diagnosis of narcolepsy with cataplexy, also known as type 1 narcolepsy. I have an acquired disability from a motorcycle accident and had uh, a brain damage, including extensive damage to my vestibular system. And um, when I first thought about uh, in conversation with people in the disability community about was I disabled? It's not something that really had occurred to me. <laughs> um, I, I resisted it first, and I uh, I almost gravitated toward differently abled as a self description. And then I, it took me a while to realize that was actually like my own kind of internalized ableism, in that oh. it was fine for other people to be disabled, but I wasn't. Hmm. And then when I think about disability specifically. If you were to say differently abled in my presentation of autism, I might say, yeah, maybe I do have different abilities. But if you were to say differently abled about narcolepsy with cataplexy, that does not feel like uh, differently abled. <laughs> right. That feels like a challenge I absolutely need accommodation for. Um, and, uh, and, and, it, and, and frankly, as I age gets uh, a, a more and more intense in its presentation. I'm finding I need more and more accommodation in order to go out my, my daily life and living. And I'm just so struck with like, you know, I think it probably somebody was really sweet trying to come up with a term like differently able to add the best intent in the world. And that's why we have to look at intent and impact of language because mm. that stigmatization um, and that I love that dichotomy between disabled and enabled. Um, Differently abled, the impact does not lead toward enabling. You mentioned accommodations, and Alyssa Carroll on Instagram asks, mm -hmm. Yeah, Alyssa, um, 
Should I claim mental illness as a disability on job forms, et cetera? I'll be very upfront and say there are certain questions like that one that I want to be super clear, right? Like I am not a mental health expert. I am not a legal advocate. Um, so I will say from where I'm sitting and in, in, in my understanding um, as a consultant, there are pros and there are cons. And a lot of that depends on company culture. A lot of that depends on how well you know the company. But the biggest question I would be asking myself is what is your goal? Like, what is your end goal in disclosing? Are there specific accommodations that you know that in order to succeed in the workplace, you're going to need? Mm. Um, because at some point, it, it's often healthier to be upfront and tell the truth about what it is. Also, because there are legal protections that come once it's clear that we're talking about accommodations for a diagnosed disability. But I would be very wary to say as a blanket statement across the board, like, please just go volunteer all of this information up front to companies because should that be a helpful thing? It should, but we don't live in a world where that's always a reality. Mm -hmm. Should it be illegal to use that information to discriminate against you? It should. Mm. But does that mean that that never happens and that it's never used against people? I can't say that with confidence. So I think a lot of it comes down to figuring out what it is that you're that you want to get out of it. If you don't feel like there's certain accommodations that you need, um, if you don't know the company culture well enough to know if that would be a detriment to your job security, I don't think you owe it ever to anyone to disclose any in medical information that you don't want to. That's never something that you are required to tell people. Mm. Um, even if it's something that can affect your job performance, even if it's something like you're never required to disclose anything that you don't want to, you don't have to out yourself in an ableist society. Um, Ooh, good quote. But mm -hmm. if, you know, you feel like there are specific accommodations that without them, you're not going to be able to survive at your job. Uh, you know, it comes down to, I wouldn't want to be in a situation where, I knew that I was going to burn out or I knew that it was inevitably going to come to a head later. And I was just sort of biding my time, trying to keep the secret, you know what I mean? Holding on to these things as long as mm -hmm. I could. Mm -hmm. If I knew that it was something that was, I need accommodations or I'm not going to succeed at this job. I think it's better to volunteer it up front in those cases. Mm -hmm. So, You know, I used to work in uh, large corporations in corporate America and, um, I would be inclined to tell people, if possible, not to disclose disability in the interview process. Um, in most companies, in most working environments, accommodations uh, for disability, diagnosed disability, are covered by the Americans with Disability Act. And in theory, disability sh does, isn't a factor in the hiring process. Uh, at all. In that practice, that's not as true. And it's actually, in my opinion, probably easier to have conversations about accommodation on your hiring day than in a job interview, because there's a different, they've hired you based on your qualifications. And if they've hired you based on your qualifications and you're doing your job, uh, the fact that you would need some kind of accommodation now is not um, really grounds for termination. Um, and I think, you know, we think about this a lot. We, there's a company that makes the Cozy Robot Show. It's called Quantum Spin Studios. It's an actual like company company. We're employees of it. Um, uh, Grace and I, and we think a lot about, um, the kind of exploitive nature of industry and work. Mm. We think about that a lot. And we thought, you know, there's these movements to farm more sustainably, to, to be, you know, use the soil in a more sustainably way and, and use animal populations in more sustainable ways. And we haven't even thought about how people can work in more sustainable ways. Mm. And I think there's, for anyone listening to me right now who employs or hires people, hear me out. I think there's a competitive advantage to be had by being known as the kind of company where people with disabilities state that in the interview 
uh, because they know that they feel comfortable doing so and they know accommodation is going to be there preemptively. In a tight labor market, that becomes a competitive advantage in recruiting. And we also have this belief that when people feel seen and supported as people and not cogs in a machine, they'll actually make better work. <laughs> like, uh, and we're we're finding that to be true in our company. So there is one like the the issue of what it means when you're interviewing, but. I, for interviewers and hiring agents and business owners and company leaders, there's a time right now, if we say we care about inclusion, we have real opportunities to change the way, the culture around work to our competitive advantage. Because if you're mm -hmm. a first mover in this space, what's going to happen? The brightest most emotionally aware, most forward-thinking people are going to be attracted to your company, which means what? You're going to create the brightest, most forward-thinking, most mo emotionally aware products and services. Uh, I just want to read a comment that came in. Jacqueline said, I noticed internalized ableism in myself in terms of my experience with mm. mental illness. It took me until I was also experiencing chronic fatigue for me to start identifying as being disabled. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that, Jacqueline. Mm -hmm. um, all right, let's let's go to another question that I thought was really great. Victory.beth on Instagram asks, how can I be a disability advocate personally and professionally without taking up space that isn't mine to hold? Mm -hmm. Ooh. Good question. I'm telling you, people came out with the great questions. I want Mike to go first on this one because this is a conversation that we've had the two of us many times throughout your sort of processing of being disabled. So I, mm -hmm. I kind of want you to take the lead on this one. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we're cozy robots. We're empathetic skeptics. And I think that actually offers a really good template for advocacy on issues where... Um, You're an accomplice, but not directly implicated by the matter at hand. So, like, if you're not disabled, you know, fighting for disability rights doesn't impact you directly in any way. But it's a matter of um, I don't, what's right in the world. It's a matter of... Um, The way we treat others creates the culture of the entire world. And so before I identified as disabled, um, I've had this multi-decade process of learning that uh, racism wasn't a thing that we beat in the civil mm -hmm. rights era and that um, women's liberation is not complete and you know you go through these issues of marginalization in society and what one of the last ones i kind of woke up to <laughs> was a uh, disability and what happens to me is uh early in my process of realizing not everyone faced the same challenges in life from society <sighs> i would rush in thinking i could fix it like, well, okay, I, I didn't know this was happening, but now I do know that it's happening, and I'm a smart and capable white man, so clearly this can't be any harder than, like, a complicated tax form or funding a business or launching a product or all the things I do super well. This is a piece of another thing. I tell you what, now that I'm involved, I bet we can fix white supremacy <laughs> by 3 p.m. next Thursday. Let's go. Right. <laughs> And uh, that's that's the white savior phenomenon, right? Uh, which, boy, I all in at first. All in, I was insufferable. Uh, so I got some feedback on social media when I launched into the spaces of uh, queer folks and people of color with a savior mentality. And there's, a, there's already a script for this, by the way. And that's when white men get pushback when they try to fix everything. And they go, well, I guess you just don't want my help. 
I'm going to go listen to Jordan Peterson and become a libertarian, <laughs> right? Like, um, and I'm sorry if I'm mashing on anyone's toes, but I definitely had that moment in my life where I'm like, oh, I'm not welcome here. I guess I should lick my wounds and just figure out some other thing. Um, and I was like, but wait, I can't be the first person to have felt this way. <laughs> and, uh, and surely I was not. And so instead of retreating, I reached out to some of the people who had most intensely offered me feedback. And I said, hey, I am sorry. I was operating out of good intentions, but total ignorance. And I, I realize I've done harm, and I feel terrible about this. I don't even know how to undo the harm. And I know that's like not really your responsibility, all I want you to know, I don't want anything from you. I just want you to know that what you said connected with me, and I'm going to go do some research, and I'm going to try to learn, and I don't think I'll be any better tomorrow or next week, but I bet two years from now, you'll see a difference in my life and work. And uh, one of those people two years later messaged me and said, wow, you really did it. So by the time I became aware that, you know, disabled people had this fairly unique form of marginalization in society, I had that tool set of realizing I can't just show up and fix it. So here's a new thing. Oh my gosh, my mind is blown. I don't know anything about it. But what I have are resources. I have skills, I have money, um, and I have access to people. Everyone has access to people, whether you're a public figure or not. So I don't know what to do with those things to solve this problem, but I can connect authentically with people and say, hey, all these things I have, tell me what to do with them, I'll do it. No questions asked, any connection you want made, you want to call my show, call my show. You want me to connect you with a congressperson, I'll connect you with a congressperson. You want me to send every money in my checking account to a given cause, let's, let's go, I am in. And um, people in my life saw like, no, well, Michael actually, <laughs> it's not a, he, he, he delivers on that initial like, yes, I'm in with taking the actions I ask him to take and taking ownership of his own learning. Hmm. So I don't expect to be spoon fed information when I become hmm. aware there's a new dynamic in the world. Uh, I'll get on social media and I'll figure out who the top advocates are. And then this is crazy, y'all. I just go onto Google and I type that person's name and reading list and 80% of the people who are advocates have already published a reading list on the internet. You don't even yeah. have to ask them for the reading list. It's already done and Google will find it for you. So then you go, read. in my case, read every single book on every single reading list for 10 or 20 people. And by that time, you can have an informed conversation. You have a more targeted offering of support for people. And... Um, you don't make it about you. Um, and that's the big thing. You know, when I uh, invite people on, on media I create, I don't do it so that my brand looks good. I don't do it so I look smart. I don't do it so I make more money or attract a new audience segment. I do it because I've worked hard. All of you listening right now live and on demand, guess what you have in common? You are kind thoughtful people. I've worked hard to get all of you together in the same space. And so when I invite someone like Stephanie to co-host, it's not because I want you to think I'm great. It's because I think you going through the process I went through with Stephanie being one of the people you listen to will change your life. And when we change your life, it'll change the world. Hmm. And uh, that's the process as, as I see it. I just talked for so long. I am so No, sorry. it was so good. good. It was exactly really what good. I wanted you to say, because you <laughs> nailed it, that the main point is wanting to help is not being ready to help <laughs> and knowing the difference that no matter how good our intentions are or how much we want to help, it's, it's easier than we think to accidentally hurt when we're trying to help. Um, mm -hmm. And so no matter how much gusto or excitement we have about an, a, an issue that we've stumbled on. Um, I think you nailed it because the main thing you figured out in your process was 
I'm not the first person in the room. Mm. And there's very rarely an issue where you are legitimately the first person in the room. And if you know you're not the first person in the room, it changes your attitude right away from I'm going to fix it to instead of leading, you're you're focusing on amplifying, mm-hmm. right? Like doing the work mm-hmm. to learn who's already doing the work, who already has the resources and the connections and and sort of the infrastructure set up that the work is happening. You are just new to the room, <laughs> like you've shown up, but there are people here. Trust me, they're here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very rare that it's ever a good idea to jump in and decide you're going to fix a systemic issue. It's always worthwhile to take a back seat for a minute to do the learning first. Um, and that's not saying you should never speak up on anything unless you're a certified expert and you've read all of the books and the, um, you know, that's where amplifying comes in. If, if you're, if you're listening, if you're diversifying the voices that you're listening to, if you have disabled people in your social media feed, if you're reading their books, if you're listening to their podcasts, you're going to hear certain things enough times to know that when you're in conversation and you hear someone say something really ableist or something, you see something ableist happening, you've heard enough what they're telling you they'd like someone to say in that situation or what they'd like someone to do. And you know to jump in and and and, and follow those sort of plot points. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not saying, you know, just sit on your hands and never say a word unless you're a certified expert. Otherwise, you're not entitled to talk. But there's a difference between coming in thinking, I'm going to make a plan, I'm going to fix this thing. And like you said, recognizing I'm not, I'm just new to the room. There are plenty of people here already for me to follow. So let me find out what's happening first before I divert resources and attention and time to my idea and sort of follow the groundwork that's already been laid instead of thinking I'm going to lead the team. Mm, could I could I bounce off that before we continue? Grace? Please. Of course. Because Stephanie said something so good there. I want to, I want to, I want to like highlight it with a marker and put, put neon lights on it because you know, the more, I know this word gets so many people working with the more privilege we have in our identity, meaning like the closer we are to white, straight, cisgendered, able-bodied man, wealthy American, the closer, the more of those things we can check off (laughs) kind of the more privilege we have. That doesn't mean your life doesn't have challenges if you're all those things. It's not what it means, but it means you have some advantages structurally in society. When you start to move into, we'll we'll stick to this episode, disability advocacy, and you start to speak up and you get pushback, so often the reflexive response is, my voice isn't welcome here. I guess everybody's voice isn't welcome, which is total bullshit. It's total bullshit. Listen to me. Before I knew I was disabled, I found quickly that my voice was welcomed and celebrated in disability advocacy communities as long as I didn't talk over other people. And that's the difference. And it's hard to see if you are enabled the more enabled you are by society when your voice is actually drowning out everyone else's. Um, But that's an important perspective shift. And I've had to go through it myself, feeling my voice wasn't welcome in advocacy and realize it was because I was bringing in white male privilege into this space and like just assuming I was centered because I'm always centered in every environment and learning to take up, I don't know, I'd say ideally a little less space than actually disabled people, but like start with like the same, <laughs> Just like, you know, pay attention to how much you're talking versus other people are talking and what your expectation is about being heard versus how much you listen. Um, and it'll make a big difference because when you're in a, in a, a, a advocacy community and advocacy space, it's not a one-on-one conversation. So if you feel like, well, I'm only talking half the time in this thread, well, if there's 30 people in the thread, you talking half the time is you're absolutely centering yourself. So just like be, start to have some self-awareness of that dynamic because it'll save so much time and frustration for yourself and for other people. I think it's important to point out that disability 
is unique a little bit and that this happens in all kinds of advocacy spaces. But with disability, there's a very unique component in that there's already a cultural idea that um, we need to be infantilized. We need to be taken care of. Um, so there's a lot of already narratives of voice for the voiceless built into disability wow. spaces more so than some other areas because we've already been cast as people that need to be cared for, people that need people to go out and do the advocacy for us because we're frail and we can't do it for ourselves or we're nonverbal or we're, so we're just not capable of doing mm-hmm. things. We need caregivers mm-hmm. to come in and dominate the narrative and take care of us in this area, just like everything else. So it's one where it's even easier to accidentally harm when you have the best of intentions, because this space is already just has a long, very difficult and ongoing history of caregivers dominating the advocacy space and speaking over actually disabled people Mm -hmm. and saying what they think we want um, and what they believe is best for us. And so when able people come in and they're very excited and they really do have the best of intentions, they want to help. It's important to check ourselves because very often when you dig, you realize it's coming from a place of, I need to do this for them because they, they're not capable of doing it for themselves. And that that's always harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care if we're talking about completely nonverbal people. I don't care if we're talking about somebody who is in a wheelchair full time and has almost no mobility. They're still capable of advocating for themselves. There are still ways that they can communicate their needs and they still get to lead out. Mm-hmm. We're not the exception. We're not the one form of advocacy where you know, we need abled people or we won't be able to do it on our own. We can, we really can. Um, So it's even more important here to be aware that you're going to come in feeling like you're doing us a favor and that we should be grateful. And that's so harmful and unhelpful. That's the very first thing you have to get out of your system is, I'm so glad that you're excited about disability advocacy, but I don't owe you a thank you. Mm. This is the bare minimum. You are supposed to make things accessible. You are supposed to care about my inclusion in society. You're supposed mm-hmm. to see me as fully human. So when you come in and we, you're right, we see a lot of white able men who come in and they're like, well, fine, if you don't want my help, because deep down what's happening is they feel like I came in and tried to take care of you and you weren't very grateful you're not, you're not showing me that you appreciate that I'm taking care of you. And it's hard for them to understand that's because I don't need you to take care of me. I need society to stop putting up barriers. Sure. But I'm not looking for you to come in and fix everything for me. I am very capable of doing this work for myself. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. So this, we have to be extra careful here. Mm. I, I have st- I'm so activated in the best way by this conversation. I hate to do this, but we got to go to ads. Okay. So uh, that's right. So take it away, Mike. Be back in a moment, y'all. The Cozy Robot Show. It takes a village to make the Cozy Robot Show possible. And many of you are a part of that village already because you've gone to CozyRobots.com and joined the Cozy Robots. Uh, we do a lot of fun stuff when you do. Uh, I like to think of the Cozy community as a lot bigger than this show. Frankly, the show is just one thing we do and increasingly not even a major part of it. And we have a community for the Cozy Robots that happens on Discord available to all of our Cozy Robots. There are hundreds of people in there, and it is like the internet without the bad stuff, without the harassment, without the posturing, without the advertising, but the good stuff, finding people who, you know, you have points of affinity and affiliation with, doing fun things together. Tonight, we're going to have the after party like we do every week. We have a book club that meets every other week that is currently reading some really amazing books together, and uh, more to come. We do uh, gaming communities together. Uh, It's just a really, really fun space. If that sounds like something you'd like to be a part of, why not go to CozyRobots.com 
as soon as you're done watching the show or heck while you're watching that's okay and find out what it's all about literally any amount helps and gets you access to that community also this week i'd love to tell you about kiwico a company that is defining the future of play by making it engaging, enriching, and seriously fun. I absolutely adore KiwiCo. They make crates. What are crates? They are complete kits that arrive in the mail to make projects around Steam. I don't mean hot water or a video game service. I mean science, technology, engineering, art, and math. They're based in Mountain View, California. And when you sign up for their service, they deliver a crate every month around a theme that is age appropriate for whoever you've gotten the kit for and in uh, the theme of that given line. So they have some that are more kind of engineering and science focused, some that are more art focused, some that blend the two. They're wonderful. I really enjoy that each box comes with everything, all the supplies you need to do that month's project, which means no extra runs to the store or online orders to e-commerce sites to complete a project, as well as detailed and kid-friendly instructions, which include an enriching magazine filled with content to learn even more about that crate's theme. These things are awesome. I love them. I've done them myself. My teenage children have done them. Uh, my wife has done them. Family members have done them. People send me pictures of people of all ages diving into their Kiwi crates. They are seriously fun. You make walking robots, hydraulic arms, ukuleles, room decorations, lights, really, really fun stuff. Paint spinners. I mean, I don't know. They're just like maybe the most fun thing I've ever seen. And best of all, in my opinion, they get you away from the screens all the time and give you tactile, hands-on play experience. They work for people of absolutely any age. So everything you need to make Steam seriously fun is delivered to your doorstep by KiwiCo. So you can get 30% off your first month plus free shipping. That's right, free shipping on any crate line by using the code Cozy Robots. That's right, 30% off your first month at kiwico.com using promo code Cozy Robots. All right, let's get right back into it. Lori on Twitter writes, I had cancer when I was 17 mm. and it ate away at my hip. I have had a hip replacement for 28 years. Mm-hmm. I know I have a disability and that doesn't bother me normally, but how do I get people to see more than the limp? I am more than just my disability. Hmm. There's a lot to unpack there. Wow. I don't like that question at all. And I don't mean that for the asker. I mean, the assumption that you're the one who should do something. I just had to vocalize. That puts a tightness in my chest and a fire in my belly. I think you actually hit on something important in that underneath that whole question is the underpinning of we live in structural ableism. Okay, so the reason that entire question exists, first of all, the reason that somebody would define you entirely by your disability has to do with structural ableism. But the reason that our questioner has to be so concerned that that's going to happen, that people will see that first and identify them first, again, because of structural ableism, because we know Mm -hmm. that people are assigning a negative connotation to disability. And that's creating that undercurrent of my worst nightmare is that somebody would define me based off of this because I know that would be a negative and I don't want them to see me that way. So it's so hard because you're right. This shouldn't be a question of what this person needs to do any different. They're not, they're existing in the world. They are what they're, they're not doing anything wrong or, or need to do it differently or The problem is so outside of them and so much bigger than them. And this is why it's so important to understand ableism as structures, as systems, as a systemic issue, rather than am I nice to disabled people or did we build a ramp at our, you know, restaurant or like that's, that's not 
looking at the bigger systems here, that the whole reason that somebody needs to be afraid that they're going to be defined by their disability is because that would be a negative thing. Um, And I agree, like, I don't want people to only see me as disabled. But for me, that's because I don't actually want them to see me as only one thing of any of the one things that I am. And that includes any other positive or neutral thing, right? I don't don't want want people to be seen as only bearded. There you go. (laughs) So like, I see disability as neutral, as morally neutral. If you see me as disabled, I'm very comfortable with that. If that's the first thing that pops into your head when you describe me to somebody, I used to feel like, well, that's, I don't want that. I'm actually very neutral to that now. That doesn't bother me in the same way. But I understand why when you're aware that we live in structural ableism, that yeah, it would be scary to think of people thinking of you as disabled first. But, you know, we should never think of anybody as all one thing. But I don't think this questioner needs to do anything different. I don't think they're doing anything wrong. I I think they're feeling the tension of living in ableist systems. And, and that's something that is ultimately outside of our control. We can we can do the work to educate people around us as we feel led, but we don't owe that to anybody. It's not our job to fix structural ableism because we happen to be disabled. That's not how this works. Um, so I, I feel similarly, like I just feel a lot of tension around this question because you shouldn't have to do anything. You just exist in the world, in the body that you're in. The problem is not with you. The problem is with other people. And you may have to do something that is um, put upon you. And that's make sure that you don't force, you don't allow the world to force you to see only your own limp. And that's the work for disabled people. You know, I realized when I got diagnosed with autism, I'm a... a a very self-positive person. I I, I have a, a great deal of self-love, I think, when compared to most people. That And I've worked hard for that. So when I, there's things about me that um, maybe society would stigmatize, I usually like, nope, I'm, I'm fine with that. I like me a lot. But all the symptoms of autism were things I hid from other people and was deeply ashamed of. Because what I had seen when other people express these things that I do typically like when no one's around and I kind of forget to mask. When I would see the reactions people would have to those people, whoa, it was different, right? So there was like a lane, like as as my midsection expanded. There was a lane in our society. Well, like, but if you're a if you're a fat man, but you're funny, that's okay. That's a form of acceptable in society. But there was no social modeling for stimming or for the kind of little twitches my body makes if I don't pay attention, right? Those are things that people go, well, are you? is there something wrong with you? You can literally see people's like recoiling body language in a lot of those situations. And I'm not comparing my autism to your hip replacement. What I am comparing, perhaps, is my internalized ableism against me. And I'm not saying that's in you. If other people see only your limp, they're at fault. But if if any number of people have done that to you in your life, based on the way social mammals work, your brain is going to try to inter your nervous system will try to internalize that critique to preemptively change your behavior to avoid social shunning behaviors because that's the way human beings are wired. And you might have to confront some of that shame you feel that was projected into you. You didn't generate it. You didn't create it. It's not your fault. But it is something you might have to deal with. You might have to to learn to embrace and celebrate your body, including your replaced hip and including the gait that comes along with it because, gosh, your body's doing so many great things. 
right? You're still moving through the world. You're still you. You are still happening. And you. the only thing I can say in response to that question, I don't know if you can get to other people to do their thing. Fuck other people. <laughs> I've avoided the F word so long in this question. I just can't yeah, anymore. Yep. Uh, but the only work you may have to do is on self-acceptance, self-validation, and indeed, dare I say, self-celebration. I love that. That might even need to be the title of this episode. I had it a discussion of disability, but maybe uh, subtitle self-celebration. I, I like that. Um, someone in the comments, Chris, Crystal said, it's so hard when people don't even know you and come up like, what happened to you? What's wrong with you? Oh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, it's that there is like a societal narrative that is really hard to push past because people don't realize that they've just been exposed to it for so long. It just feels neutral. It feels like a thing they've always known. Um, but we're infantilized in a way that um, we sort of lose our agency to people. Um, when you see us as childlike, when you see us as dependent, it's a lot easier for you to ignore our consent to ignore mm. our independence, to feel entitled, to put your hands on our body, to ask us invasive questions, because um, the underpinning is all of that is you don't see us as fully adults, right? Mm -hmm. you, you see us the way you would see a small child is, well, it's okay. Cause you know, they don't know any better. Um, so yeah, we, I mean, I've had people come up and physically put their hands on my body oh, and ask if they God. can pray to heal me right there. And it's like, there are about eight things wrong with this interaction. Um, there are times that somebody has asked if they can help me if I need assistance. And I've said no, and they blow through into it anyways, or they seem very angry that I didn't accept their help. And they try to push me to accept it anyways. And, and yeah. on, again, underneath that, it's the idea that I don't have agency because I'm not a I'm not capable of being a full adult woman on my own. And again, it's that underlying narrative of ableism that says I will never be fully adult. I will never be fully human, really. That I will always need someone to be responsible for me or taking care of me. And so when you're out there and you don't have a caregiver that they can clearly identify as the person who's there pushing your wheelchair or taking, you know, your order or whatever, then they feel entitled to step into that role in little ways because you need someone to take care of you in the world. Um, yeah, that happens all the time. You, uh, you made a perfect transition for this next question, Stephanie. Um, You're Lauren, welcome. <laughs> thank you very much. Lauren at home on Instagram asks, what is my cue to assist someone with a disability versus being infantilizing? Mm -hmm. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Such a good question. Yes. So I'm so proud of the questions this week. I feel underprepared, Mike. Like I wish your audience was slightly dumber. Like I'm really, <laughs> really good at disability 101. Like these are not 101 questions. Um, <laughs> I think we have to get the elephant out of the room right away uh, in any advocacy space, but especially here. Um, if you want me to give you all the ways to not make a mistake, um, you're coming at this wrong. Like if you want me to tell you how to say all the right words and never use the wrong terminology or never offend someone or never step on any toes or like, I can't give you that. Like right off the bat, let's be very clear. Um, you're going to make mistakes you're going to step on toes. You're going to accidentally harm somebody sometimes. Um, and being aware of that, it's not a free pass to say that, you know, it doesn't matter, just do whatever. But it's an important thing to get into our heads right away mm -hmm. so that we are prepared for it is going to happen and I need to be ready to make amends and make it right and learn from it as opposed to, I'm just not going to do anything. I'm going to freeze and I want to be perfect. And if I can't mm -hmm. be perfect, then I'm not going to get involved. So this is one of those areas where, you know, I, I can't give you a clear answer of different people have different cues and different people have different desires. And somebody may be offended just that you even asked if you could help. And somebody else may be 
really offended if you see them struggling and you don't ask if you can help. So there's not like one good blanket answer that I can say, this is what you do. And so for sure, you'll never offend a disabled person and you'll never do an ableism. Good job. Like I don't have one of those. A lot of it is reading cues. I'm sorry. Never but a do lot an of it. I mean, that's <laughs> it's so true. But Stephanie, I mean, people are so people come to when they do come with questions. They're like, tell me how to not do any ableism. So I can say <laughs> I don't do that. So I don't have any mad disabled people because I didn't do any ableisms this week. Like you got Mike right in the funny yeah. bone. He's gone. <laughs> He's gone. He's, He's gone. gone. But we knew this would happen. Like, you can't have your friends on the show. It's just not a good idea. I love it. But we're not having fun while I'm not. Why but in this, I think show? it's one of those cases where you need to be prepared for them to say no. Right? The number mm-hmm. one thing is ask if you can help, but always, like, from a distant standpoint, right, of you have not assumed they're going to say yes. You've not already started to jump in. You haven't put your hands on someone's wheelchair and said, can I help you oh as you're right? You are taking a distanced approach of, I'm just not going to assume you're going to say yes or no. And if you say no, I just go, okay, have a great day. And I walk away, right? I'm not expecting anything from this interaction. Now, can I promise you that they won't feel offended that you even asked? I can't. Different people feel very differently about these interactions. But if you see someone who's struggling, I would err on the side of asking. But some of it is taking a beat to read the room, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm existing in a space and I happen to be disabled in that space, it doesn't mean I need help, right? Like, I think some people see me on days where I'm having a really bad mobility day and I have my cane and I'm tremoring and they come up and ask, can I help you? And it's like, but help me with what? Like, what help me? I don't understand. Like, I'm just existing here with a tremor. I'm not doing anything. I think that's different than if you see me struggling to hold my cup and my tray and my cane and I'm trying to get to my table if you take a beat and you read the room and you say, would you like some help getting this to your table? I'll be thrilled for the help. Um, so some of it is just learning to take a beat and ask, like help them with what? Because if they're just existing disabled, they probably don't need your help with anything. And it's learning to be ready to take a no and just say, okay, and move on. I think there's something else that I... I, I've seen on social media and someone in the comments uh, brought this up. Actually, Mike, I'll just read Mike's comment. Mike in the comments said, one of my biggest cringes is when someone helps a disabled person and records it, then puts it oh. on social media for self-praise. I said that? No, no, no. Someone in the comments. Oh. <laughs> Another Mike. Mike's like, when did I say that? <laughs> I'm commenting. <laughs> It's back there. It's back there to that idea of you're not actually helping me if there's this underlying idea that I owe you gratitude mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. You're not doing the work. You're not actually doing the work if you think you've done me a favor or you've done something praiseworthy because it means you don't see accessibility as the default norm. Right. If you're proud that you put in a ramp, if you're proud you helped that person get across the street, Um, A, you've missed the point about the structural barriers here, right? Like if you come and you help me get my cup and my tray and whatever to the table, A, and you're very proud of this and you want my gratitude, A, you think that I'm owed less than you are in public spaces, first of all. You've done me a favor by giving me the same thing that you have the right to, which is the ability to move Mm -hmm. freely in that space, right? But B, it's very easy then if if you feel like I owe you gratitude to miss that the underlying point here is that there's a systemic barrier for me. So you helping me right now didn't fix that. You helped me get to the table and that's great. And I'm so glad I don't have coffee all over my shirt, but it doesn't fix that. This is the thing that's going to keep happening for me and other people like me. So when you come in with this attitude that we owe you a thank you or that you've done us a favor or you missed the plot. And that's one of the key signs to me that someone isn't actually doing the work. So if you're filming someone, it's because you think people would celebrate this, that this is, you've done a good deed as opposed to seeing this as this is 
this is neutral, right? This is the bare minimum. This person should have had access to these things to begin with. I'm just correcting something that's a wrong. I'm not doing a good, like I'm just bringing it from negative to neutral, not from neutral to good. Mm. You know, I, I uh, was reflecting on the question and realizing it's a great question to ask an autistic person as everything in my life is a set of procedures and routines that are pretty strictly codified as nothing makes sense to me involving other people. <laughs> so, and I realized that my script for how, when to help people is in no way specific to disabled people, right? When do I help people? Well, I help without asking if life, limb, or health are at risk, right? Uh, I don't touch people without consent, but if someone is about to step in front of a bus, I don't say, can I touch your body? I'll grab their shoulder and pull them. And if they get really mad at me, and if they strike, whatever, that's fine. They didn't get hit by a bus, right? So that's totally... If, if if the bus question helps somebody, right? If there's not life or limb or health at question, and I'm going to help somebody, I ask, "Hey, do you need help?" And that could apply. Uh, two specific examples: I saw a woman walking; she had high heel shoes. One of them was broken. Hey, do you need help? No, I'm good. Okay, have a nice day. Uh, another person was in a powered wheelchair and the chair got stuck on a ramp because the ramp hadn't been cleaned uh, on a sidewalk and it was too much sand. And so forward, backwards, stuck. Hey, do you need help? Yeah, I'm stuck. Okay. How can I help? I don't want to knock your chair over. Mm. I don't want to break your chair. I don't want to manhandle you. Do you have, you have more experience with this chair. What's the best way I could help? Right. So can I help? How can I help? If they don't know, that's fine. Then take whatever initiative you can. And then, like, there's there are times I help without asking people. I am the guy that will, no matter what city I'm in, if I walk up to a door and there's people walking to the door, I'm going to open it. I'm going to hold it open as long as it takes for no one to be walking to the door. So sometimes <laughs> I do this in Manhattan. It's like six minutes of like, yeah, after you. Go ahead. Okay. After you. But that doesn't, like, I don't rush to a chair just because someone in a wheelchair is there. I just am like, I'm the guy. The one of the things I like about being a Southern man is I learned to open doors for people. It just makes my day. Some people are like, I don't want you to open the door for me. I'll let the door go. That's fine. You can open the door. Uh, but I'm just saying, like, you already have a list in your life for when you help people. Just use that same list. And I would say some. it's obvious when someone is typically in some degree of significant challenge or difficulty. And if you're offering to help because you want to help, it doesn't matter to you if someone says no. Because that means they don't need help. It means you did the right thing by asking. We are almost to time, but because we've got so many amazing questions, I'm going to throw one last one at both of you. So here it goes. Kate Leanne 87 on Instagram asks, how should we speak to children about people with disabilities? How do we encourage children who do not have disabilities to ask appropriate questions and engage with others who do have disabilities? Who? Another gold star question. I mean people really came out. They, didn't, they did not play. <laughs> no. Um, this is one of those things where I think sometimes our gut instincts are very off mm -hmm. because we live in systemic ableism. Um, our, our gut tends to be very wrong on this one. Um, a lot of parents that I've seen sort of instinctively do a like, don't look at that person, right? Like, don't, don't, mm -hmm. don't look, don't look, don't, mom, what is it? Don't, don't look, don't say anything, don't, you know. Um, and that is the number one thing I would avoid because I can't explain, I'm now I'm weirdly emotional. I can't explain mm -hmm. the level of dehumanizing it is 
where what you've essentially communicated to that child and to the person who hears you, that acknowledging my existence, right? That acknowledging and seeing me as I am in this space is somehow so negative and so harmful that like they should just not even look, they should not ask, they should not like that they have to pretend they don't notice that I'm different in any way. That doesn't actually help. That communicates to me that I am just so far beyond the scope of what fits that it shouldn't even be acknowledged, right? Just it would just be offensive to even notice that I'm different. Dang. Um, so that's the number one gut instinct I see a lot of that like if that could stop, that would be great. I am not offended if kids ask questions when I'm tremoring, when I'm shaky. Um, and the big one for me is I'm actually not offended when children say things that are offensive, they, where they use the wrong term or where they ask it the wrong way or because they're children. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a learning opportunity for them. I am offended many times by whatever comes out of their parents' mouth next. Um, So the one thing like I want to communicate to parents is if your kid comes up and says something that's really like, oh my God, please know (laughs) like this hasn't already tanked our entire interaction. Like there's grace for that. It's not already over. It's not already like we're just done and I'm angry at you. And like children are children and there is space for that and they have to learn. Um, but they learn by example from us. And so when they have opportunities to ask me why I'm shaky or when they see my cane and they think it's cool and they want to ask questions about it, um, one of the most important things I think a parent can do at that point is ask me, first of all, you know, is it okay if he asks you a couple of questions? Because it's possible that I'm just in the middle of my grocery shopping and I don't want to spend the next 10 minutes educating your five-year-old and I'm not required to do that. I always have the right to say no. Um, But at that point, follow my lead a little bit because I'm very happy to phrase and and respond to their politely asked questions. Um, And it's okay for parents to say, oh, we don't, we don't say that. That's kind of rude. Let's ask her this instead. Um, but what, like I said, what doesn't help is to be like, sh- like, don't, don't say anything like, you know, shush them down the next aisle, pretend you can't see me act like I'm Frankenstein's monster and you need to get your children out of aisle five as quickly as possible. Um, they're going to have questions because they don't have good representation in children's books of disability and they don't have good representation in movies and they don't have good representation in media. So it's not surprising that when they see me shaking and tremoring and when they see me walking around as a young person with a fancy walking cane, it does make them go, this is different to me. I'm not used to that. And there should be space for that. It's okay. They learn by asking those questions. They're not going to magically know, but they haven't done anything wrong by acknowledging that I'm different and by having questions about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think so often these questions of what do I tell my kids about blank comes down to like, keep doing your work on the thing. Like Mm -hmm. if you're doing your work, what to tell your kids actually gets a lot easier and more simple. Um, I remember one of my daughters, very young, and we were in um, a line at a quick service restaurant to order. And the person in front of us was in a wheelchair. And my daughter asked me, what's wrong with that man? Mm. And I said, well, nothing's wrong with that man. And she said, well, why is he in a wheelchair? And I said, well, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know. There's lots of reasons people are in wheelchairs. Uh, she said, okay. <laughs> and we <laughs> didn't frame it as like fundamentally a big deal. And she took from my cues that like, I didn't shame her for asking the question. I've, it would surprise no one. I've worked hard my whole life to never shame my children for asking a question. But uh, nothing's wrong, and I don't know why. And it's actually not any of my business. Um, 
And uh, but there's lots of reasons people are in wheelchairs, and we could talk about those if you if you're curious. I'd love to talk to you about why people use wheelchairs, and um, and that we do those things in age appropriate ways. That was, in my recollection, uh, probably like our three to four year old encounter. Uh, you know, my kids are teens now. So now we have more sophisticated languages about ableist speech and uh, what colloquialisms that are very popular and uh, among even Gen Z are terms that can that can cause harm and hurt people. And um, they have a greater level of cognitive sophistication and world experience. And so they're more equipped for more uh, direct feedback on their speech. But the only reason we're going to have those conversations, or at least the only reason I can be a part in facilitating those conversations is what? Because I've been doing my own work. And there's very few relationships in which I can take ownership for another person's learning. But as a parent, I still have a significant degree of ownership in my children's learning process and how they see the world. But the only way I can responsibly steward it that is to take ownership of my learning first. And the, the best time to take ownership for these kids is before you get to those interactions, right? Mm -hmm. Like the best way to deal with those interactions is to avoid those uncomfortable interactions by having worked to expose them to good representation so that they are less likely to be alarmed or surprised or confused by a disabled person who's existing in the grocery store because when, when they've never been exposed to disability before, it's not surprising that they may have uh, an inappropriate response to that initially. But mm -hmm. if you have children that are exposed to disabled characters in their stories, mm -hmm. that you know, you're seeking out representation, you are having disabled people in your life, in your home, in your, you know, in your social network, it won't be so confusing to them because they'll have always been around that representation. That's where you can really get in there and, and invest before those situations mm -hmm. even come up in the first place. Mm -hmm. Stephanie and Mike, thank you so much for this conversation. This, every, all the comments I've been reading, all the comments, by the way, thank you so much for coming out to the show, Cozy Robots. It, mm -hmm. People are saying 100%, Stephanie. I love that approach. Like people are really uh, resonating with what both of you have to say. Um, thank you so much, Stephanie. Is there anything, any parting words you'd like to share uh, as we end the show tonight? Anything you would like to plug? I know that if you are interested in continuing to follow Stephanie Tate, she is at Stephanie Tate on the socials. Uh, but Stephanie, any thoughts? Yet yeah, try not to do an ableism this week. <laughs> try not to do. You're going to screw up, but like try. <laughs> like for real, try not to do an ableism. Oh, that's, gosh. that's your goal for the week is to just try not to do any ableism. That's a good goal. Down, it got me. <laughs> that is a really good goal. And I assume, Grace, links to Stephanie's stuff will be in the show notes and all the Absolutely. The absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, everybody, uh, thanks as always for being a part of the Cozy Robot Show, which is made possible by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. So I'd like to thank, first, our special guest co-host, Stephanie Tate. Thank you for being here, Stephanie. I'd like to thank the people who make every show possible, which is each and every Cozy Robot. I'll see you in 15 minutes in the after party on our Discord server. Woo. Our producers are Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine. Music by Madison and Macy McHarg. Production support by Amy Hill. Social media management and show co-host Grace Vaughn. Design, Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design, Landon Satterfield. Set design by Jesse Lane Interiors. Wardrobe stylist and craft services, the wonderful Jenny McHarg. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, and uh, can't wait to see you again soon. Thanks, everybody. Bye. The Cozy Robot Show.